May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So today is the fifth Sunday in Lent, which is often called Passion Sunday. Now, when we're talking about this title, the word passion, uh, we're using it a little bit different from how it's often used today. So typically today, when we talk about passion, we generally mean some sort of intense desire, emotion, or enthusiasm. So someone might speak of having a passion for classic cars or a passion for painting pictures, or even we might talk about the passion between two people, but this is not what we mean by the word in the title Passion Sunday. So Passion Sunday is not about discovering or seeing your supposedly God-given passion. That's not what it's about. I've, I've heard that sermon before. That's not what it's supposed to be about. It's not even about uh, unpacking Jesus's intense emotions or anything like that. No, the passion of Passion Sunday, it reflects an older use of the word that refers to suffering. And we see that in our liturgy, don't we? So, for example, in the communion liturgy, um, it speaks of us having in remembrance his blessed passion and precious death when we partake of the sacrament. Or we have the great litany in which we pray that we would be delivered by thine agony and bloody sweat, by thy cross and passion, by thy precious death and burial. So as we begin Passion Tide, this mini-season within the greater season of Lent, uh, we're going to see that the focus is shifting now to the Lord's suffering and death in our readings and our collects and the themes. Next week is Palm Sunday, and we're going to read the Passion narrative from St. Matthew's Gospel. During the rest of Holy Week, we're going to read the other Passion narratives in the rest of the Gospels. Well, today we're going to lay the doctrinal foundations for our Lord's Passion. Now, Melville Scott, uh, who was the sometime Archdeacon of Stafford and the author of a widely used 19th century commentary on the prayer book, he talks about um, how the church calendar usually follows a Sunday that commemorates an event in the Gospels with a Sunday that kind of unpacks it doctrinally. So we see that in, um, in Christmas and Easter in particular. The week after Christmas, we're going to talk about some of the doctrine of the Incarnation. The week after Easter, it's kind of talking about the doctrine behind the resurrection. Well, with Passion Tide, we kind of reverse the trend because we just don't have time in the rest of Lent to, uh, to, to follow the passion narratives with the, uh, with the doctrine. So we're going to kind of front load the doctrine on Passion Sunday. Our epistle in particular speaks of the nature of the atonement, uh, contrasting the atonement made by Christ in his suffering with the atonement that we see in the Old Testament. So please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 9, verse 11. Hebrews 9, 11. You can find this in your prayer book on page 132 or on page 945 in the Pew Bible. Hebrews 9, 11. But Christ being come an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, But by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats 
and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So the background to the entire epistle to the Hebrews is the Day of Atonement, which you can find described in Leviticus 16, Leviticus 23, and Numbers 29. With the possible exception of the Passover, what we see in the Old Testament is that the Day of Atonement was the holiest day on the Levitical calendar. It was the holiest day of the Old Testament feasts. It was a day when the people would have an absolute fast, so that means no food or drink of any kind. The Bible says they were to afflict their souls. Um, yeah, and, and that continues to this day. Uh, my, my, my Jewish friends, when they've seen the way that we Christians fast, they're kind of like, my goodness, you guys have it easy. <laughs> we, we, we do not typically do it as, as quite as hardcore as the Old Testament Day of Atonement. Also on the Day of, the, of, of Atonement, the high priest would make all sorts of offerings and sacrifices to atone for Israel's sins as well as for his own sin. In fact, the Day of Atonement was the only day uh, when the high priest could enter into the most holy section of the tabernacle or of the temple. To enter that holy of holies at any other time or to do so without making the proper cleansings and offerings, it was to court death. You could die for that. The rabbis tell us that the high priest would often wear bells and would tie a rope around his ankle so that if he does it wrong and he drops dead, the Lord strikes him dead, the other priests could pull him out without risking their own lives. Per Leviticus 16, after all, no one was to enter the tabernacle with the high priest when he made those appropriate offerings on the Day of Atonement. So in our epistle, the author of the book of Hebrews says that our Lord Jesus is a greater high priest whose ministry is in a greater tabernacle and whose offering is a greater sacrifice. And indeed, the, the elaborate picture of the Day of Atonement that's painted in the Old Testament, it was there to be a type or a foreshadowing of the greater atonement that would come by the Messiah. Now, if we back up in the book of Hebrews in our chapter, just a couple verses um, after describing the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement, the Apostle writes this. This is verses 8 and 9. He writes, The Holy Ghost thus saints, sorry, try that again. The Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. So that, that is, despite all the elaborate ritual, despite the holiness of the ceremonies that were given to Israel by God himself, the Day of Atonement and the tabernacle itself were never sufficient to provide 
perfect atonement. The blood of goats and bulls could never truly and perfectly wash away sins. The priest was not a perfect mediator between God and his people. We see that the sacrifice had to be repeated regularly. They couldn't last forever. The priest had to atone for his own sins before he could even get to the people's sins. And when we get to our epistle text, then, that's the next part in the chapter, we see that it begins with the remarkable words, but Christ. That is a wonderful transition. So much of the New Testament could be summed up in those two words, but Christ. The coming of the Messiah changes everything. He's not a flawed high priest who just happened to inherit the office along that patrilineal ancestry. No, the Lord Jesus is God the Son and the Son of God. Our gospel text for this Sunday from John 8, it concludes, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. He's using that same phrase that God spoke to Moses in the desert. Only Jesus could be a high priest who makes perfect mediation between God and man, because only Jesus is both God and man. So then let's break down our, our epistle verse by verse to kind of see what all's going on here, what it tells us about the atonement. So back in verse 11. But Christ, being come an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. So this greater promises, the good things to come, are a promise of true reconciliation between God and his people. That's what it's looking forward to. The promise of unity between God and man by God's miraculous intervention, God the Son assuming, assuming human flesh. The good things to come are a promise of true cleansing from sin, which is not just a restoration to the pre-fall innocence. This is not just taking us back to Adam, but it's actually a greater recapitulation where we are brought into perfect fellowship with the blessed Trinity, something better than even our father Adam had. The church fathers, they see this greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, not of this building. They see that as referring to Christ's very own physical body where he makes atonement for us. The tabernacle itself was a picture, they're saying, of Christ's body where he will make atonement. And that should remind us of another interchange between Jesus and the Jewish leaders back in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. It says, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? And then St. John explains it for us. It says, but he spake of the temple of his body. So that's the first sense when we talk about the temple not made with hands. The second sense, though, is, is that it's no coincidence that the scriptures also refer to the church as the body of Christ. He enters into us spiritually and sacramentally, just as the high priest in the Old Testament made atonement to cleanse the tabernacle, so the Lord Jesus cleanses us by his blood. 
But then we have another sense here where there's a tabernacle that's not made with hands. It's also the place, uh, the, the place in which the, the priest ministers. The previous chapter in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, uh, tells us that in, in meticulously following uh, God's plans and the construction of the tabernacle, Moses followed the pattern that he saw in heaven, the pattern of a heavenly temple. Revelation 11 speaks of St. John having a vision of this heavenly temple. Also, we have that in Revelation 4 and 5 as well. Our church, uh, traditionally the church building and the church uh, furnishings are, reflect what we see in, in these parts of Revelation. So that's the third sense of the tabernacle not made by hands. We have the heavenly temple where Christ continues to minister as the high priest making intercession for us, his brethren, here on earth. Let's go, let's go back to our text, verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and of calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, which includes that most holy sacrifices on Passover and the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice of Christ is once and for all. It's not repeated. In our communion liturgy, we speak of Jesus as the one who made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. The redemption and atonement were made once on the cross, and that is efficacious eternally. His perfect death and perfect passion applied the atonement backwards and forwards in time. So even if they didn't fully understand what was going on, we're told that the Old Testament saints looked forward to Christ's sacrifice. And we, the saints of the New Testament, look backwards to it. A big part of the argument that the book of Hebrews is making is that the Old Testament atonement sacrifices were there to point us to the greater reality that's promised in Christ. Even when we, as is sometimes said, represent the Lord's sacrifice in the, in, and when we celebrate communion, it's not a new sacrifice, but it's an ongoing application of his single sacrifice. The fact that he made a single forever efficacious sacrifice means that we've been freed from the law like we talked about last week. We do not need to make atonement for ourselves. We don't have to worry about being cast away from the Lord because he's accomplished everything needed for our redemption. So we merely need to trust in him. Let's go to verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the sacrifices of the Old Testament, though they are imperfect, they did offer some kind of cleansing. At the very least, they provide a ritual cleansing so that the people could worship God the way he commanded. They could um, um, have, have some sort of fellowship with the Lord and therefore look forward to the greater promises. 
But the, the, the author of the Hebrews is saying here, if, if these sacrifices provided some level of cleansing, how much more does Christ's blood cleanse us and purge our conscience? We get cleaned inside and out, whereas theirs is only an outward cleansing. That's why we respond then to his sacrifice, to that cleansing, as the scriptures and liturgy say, with a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving offering ourselves up as living sacrifices to God. When we're cleansed by the blood of Christ, when we're freed from the curse of the law, we don't respond with lawlessness and disobedience, but we respond by offering ourselves back to God through our good works. And we don't do this to earn the cleansing. We do it because we've been cleansed. We don't do this to obtain atonement or redemption, but we do it because we have been redeemed and atonement has been made. As the scripture says, all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. Let's close out with verse 15. And for this cause, he is the mediator of a new testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were made under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So we come back full circle now. Again, we're saying, but Christ. Because of Christ, we have a new covenant. We have eternal promises. We have eternal inheritance, all because we have been redeemed and joined to the perfect heir. So again, as we said earlier, this, the epistle here lays the theological foundation for the things that we're going to be reading, praying, and meditating upon over the next couple of weeks. During Holy Week, we read about some really terrible things that happened to our Lord. These are the longest readings also of the church year. We travel with Christ on the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. So remember, as we do this, that the scripture has given us the reasons for it. We're told why Jesus suffered. And we're told that he suffered for you and for me. We're told that the story doesn't end with his suffering, that he rose again on the third day, that he ascended to the Father, where he prepares a place for us and ministers on our behalf in the temple made without hands. We say this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.